Welcome to another episode of the Gay Barchive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guest today is writer, historian, and co-founder of Chicago's Legacy Project, Owen Keenan. So welcome to the show, Owen. Thank you. You're quite welcome. So I know um, if we really wanted to dig into your knowledge of Chicago's bar history, uh, we um, would probably spend a week or more of nonstop conversation. I know you've got a lot of stories to tell, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, as a prolific author and historian and being involved with uh, co-founding the Legacy Project, you have mm -hmm. certainly uncovered a lot of information about um, about Chicago's history. So where do you want to start? Where do you want to talk about? I'm sorry. Where do you want to start? What do you want? To, what part do you want to talk about first? You know, I think my I think the first bar I think I really would like to talk about that made a huge impression on me. I think it was probably the second gay bar I went to, but it was um, it was a place called the Stage Door Disco in Rockford, Illinois, and it was just, you know, it was, I was so excited because it felt like such a, um, like such a gay experience. And I was really hungry for those, you know, I was, I wanted to be a part of something. And um, the stage door sort of was a peek inside the door, but, uh, it was fun. It was fun. I um, ended up dating the DJ, you know, which is, of course, I had arrived, you know, when that happens. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, the, the bar that really made the big impression on me, that made me not just peek through that doorway, but step inside was um, Irene's Cabaret down in Quincy, Illinois. And that place was just, I went there and it was so magical to me because I had sort of this concept of like, um, like I knew what being gay was, that didn't surprise me, but I didn't know that being gay could also mean being part of a community. And Irene's Cabaret was like that, I mean, well, the place, let me just, just let me, let me, um, let me take a mental video camera for you. So we're walking down um, Fifth Street in Quincy, Illinois, on the, the street front. It's completely boarded up, painted black, um, and a sign that says, enter in rear. So then you go around to the alley and there's a sign on this back door that says, Irene's Cabaret, enter here. So you go in, there's a long hallway with the bathrooms on the left. Then it goes into a game room that has a couple pool tables and a sitting area and um, other things, like little other couches and things. Then you go through another doorway and there's the main bar, which is, 
Irene was very particular about lighting. So it was very dim and like it was violet lighting and mirrors on the left wall and mirrors on the right wall and uh, Grecian statuary with boas. I mean, it was, um, it was a gay bar. Um, and then you went through there, that room, and there was a jukebox on the, um, on the right with a, with a pretty good sized dance floor. And the, um, and then a seating area, a big seating area that was basically like um, restaurant surplus sort of, sort of seating. But the place was so magical. I mean, Irene, whose real name was Willie, ran the place and it was like this exercise in incredible gayness and as just the place was just immersed in Willie's personality and that like the jukebox, the jukebox was um, like it was Della Reese and it was, uh, I'm trying to think of something. The, the musical selection you got the feeling was not somebody from a jukebox company coming around and putting records in there, but actually um, like 45s from Irene's collection at home. And Irene ran this place with, when I was there, this was the early eighties, um, with his, uh, he said it was his nephew. He was probably like 30 years old and had like this, um, like Daryl Hall, no, John Oates, like John Oates hair, like a big, um, a, a big black kind of perm thing. And his name, his name, uh, by the way, was Horetta, was what his, what Irene would always call, um, this manager of the place and it was it was so much fun they were so liberating because Quincy's a town of like 40,000 and Irene and Horetta would just they they would downplay nothing and they brought that to the bar and the bar was this only place in this a pretty big radius. I mean, there was Springfield um, to the east and there was St. Louis to the south. But other than that, in that sort of area, um, it was Irene's Cabaret. And it, so because of that, the bar was uh, Leathermen and Drag Queens and... Um, blue collar workers and farmers and um, a lot of, a lot of women. And it was, it was a very mixed environment. And the thing was, is that no matter how different everybody was, everybody got along so well, you might not know everybody's name, but the people there had your back. Yeah. And, to have that sort of feeling in a bar was just, it was like this light bulb went off for me. Uh, especially when we're talking about, 
you know, the time frame that we are, which, like you said, was the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Irene's was a fairly new bar at that time. Uh, I believe they opened bar. actually in 1980. Um, and they continue to operate for 36 years. They only closed a few years ago in uh, 2016. When I read that, I, le- I literally got teary. And I'm not kidding. But the most shocking part of what you just said, I probably went there starting in 81. So that place was a y- open a year. It looked like it looked like it could have been there for 50 years. I mean, it had the feel of like this riverboat brothel where everything was like red and flocked wallpaper and the mirrors and stuff. It was, it was so over the top. I could not have, I could not have loved it more. Yeah, and the thing was, is it was such a reflection of the personality of the owner. You know, this wasn't like somebody else. This was a queer owned bar. And the good, the great kudo to the story was that I lived above this music store on Main Street in Quincy. And um, I was on the top floor and I had access to the roof. So in the summer, you know, the best place to lay was on the roof of the um, of the building. And I could look down into the backyard of Willie, whose house, his yard sort of was right behind me. And he and Horetta would be out there all day if it was sunny and they'd be, you know, iodine and baby oil and just like an album cover with aluminum foil. And they would just be out there just smoking and gossiping and flipping through magazines, through like tabloids. They were absolutely incredible. I, I was mesmerized by them because I'd met people in Quincy who were gay, but it was very different. You know, it was very like a lot of, of the gay community there outside the bar was sort of very, um, not closeted, but very low key. So that was my first kind of big time exposure to somebody who just had no interest in well, what anybody to, else did or thought. To put it into perspective for people who are thinking, well, you know, we're talking about Chicago. No. Um, That's Quincy, Quincy, Illinois. Quincy is about five hours south, southwest of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So it's not next door to Chicago. It's not a suburb of Chicago. It's a town of 35 to 40,000 people now. I don't know what it was then. And we're talking, um, we're talking about 40 years ago. I mean, this is a time when a lot of places you could easily got, um, gotten mugged or, or beaten up or lost your job or thrown out of your house or whatever for being gay. And from what I understand, the pictures I've seen uh, Willie, known as Irene West, I think was his drag name. Um, but Willard Kaufman was the owner, and he was a tall guy, wasn't he? He wasn't like some little diminutive drag queen. The pictures I see, he kind of towers above the people in the picture with him. Uh, very tall and lean. And very, um, they, they were both very, um, the body type of that era uh-huh. was very, you know, that trim, very, very trim. 
Now, were you still there in 1984 or had you moved away from by then? I was still there. So you remember um, one of the stories I discovered about um, Irene's when I was doing a little research is in 1984, Irene, a.k.a. Willie, um, was robbed, beaten and left for dead at his home. Horrible. Horrible. I remember that. So there was another connection of, you know, a situation of a gay bar where the owner or dry queen, depending on how the, the um, perpetrator looked at it, but a gay person uh, who was prominent in the community was robbed and beaten. And literally, uh, from what I remember from the story, um, he had some damage to his vision and he was permanently deaf in one year after that. So it was a severe beating. It wasn't, you know. It was horrible. I was, um, I was still living in Quincy at that time, but I had, um, well, it doesn't, I was away from Quincy for probably four or five months there. And it happened during that period. And the thing was, is that was, so incredibly heartbreaking that um but you know what i i willie went back willie didn't sell the place you know that's the that's the incredible thing willie went on to own that to keep owning that bar for almost 30 more years you know after that happened um it's, it was, yeah, it was just horrible because that bar felt really safe, you know? And when that happened, it sort of was like one of those things that shakes you and say, you know, I wish the world were as cool as the bar was, you know? Yeah, and, and we were a resilient community then. Um, we're about the same age, and I was having my first gay experiences around the same time. I think the actual first gay bar I went to was in 1978. And uh, so I know exactly what the vibe was then, and um, it was definitely different. So after Irene's Cabaret, um, is that around the time you, you moved to Chicago, mid-'80s? Yes, Yes, I left Quincy and came to Chicago. Um, and Chicago was Chicago was a whole different scene, you know. Um, I was I was so thrilled to be here, you know, because it was I was entering the world. I can can't think of anything better way to describe this, but I was like entering the world of After Dark magazine. Um, you know, which had always been a fantasy and a focal point for me, um, just to, just to be able to sort of see that kind of, uh, that kind of bar culture and nightlife activity reflected, um, in, in, in culture in general, to be able to look through a magazine and see that, um, and so when I came to Chicago, it was just this immersion in this incredibly wonderful world, 
And the main thing that I resented, though, was the fact that it was, um, I, I resented the wrong word. The ma I regretted the fact that I had missed a lot of the heyday of the great bars because in 1985 was sort of when things started changing with, um, with the nightlife scene, you know, because of the, the rise of, of HIV and AIDS. Um, so the great Chicago bars I'd fantasized about, you know, were still around, but, or actually, let me rephrase that. Um, one of the bars that was no longer still around that I had heard about and always fantasized about was Dugan's Bistro, which was around from 1973 to 1982. And it was like, it was a groundbreaking disco. I mean, it, it, it was often called the Studio 54 of the Midwest, but it predated Studio 54 by four years. And the bistro was a, out like a just very gay disco that bridged into the mainstream. It was outrageous and it was decadent and it was disco and it hit in 1973. The timing was perfect and it just took off. It had the right level of absurdity and abandon. And the thing that made the timing so right is in the early years of, of gay liberation, you know, in the, the early 70s, um, there was such just, after so many years of repression, the overwhelming feeling among people was just to celebrate, you know? And so the celebration became this huge party and Dugan's Bistro was sort of the epicenter of that. Um, it attracted celebrities, you know, it was all about outrageousness. I, I wrote a book about it. I became so obsessed about it called Dugan's Bistro and the Legend of the Bearded Lady. And that was one of the times when I, one of the great things that I enjoy about, um, about writing and especially writing about something like this that I didn't get the chance to experience is I can hear people's stories and I can read newspaper articles and I can see pictures and I can sort of piece together that environment. And what I try to do both for myself and for the reader is make it into this kind of like time travel, like the ability to experience as fully as possible an LGBTQ experience that um, due to timing, you were never able to, uh, to encounter firsthand. So it was, it was such an incredible writing experience. I mean, the great thing about interviewing someone for a project like that is you can just, you can ask all the questions that you want to ask about a place like that. And you're asking it of people who experienced it firsthand. And, uh, 
and they want to share that. They want to talk about it. Um, they want that history preserved. And it's so fun to be part of that, um, that time capsule kind of process. So yeah, the Bistro was just, um, it was so much fun to work on. And the bar was so important and groundbreaking for so many of the things in disco. And the sad thing was, is that what often happens in Chicago and um, Milwaukee and Detroit and Atlanta and other places is that especially for the time period, there was a really big focus on New York, San Francisco and LA. And so a lot of the history of those other cities is kind of basically left to fall between the cracks. And so that's why it's important to do things like what you're doing with this uh, podcast to, to preserve these stories that are basically in people's memories that our social history, which are such a big part of people's lives, but that haven't really been contained. They're not news stories per se. So um, doing this and keeping that part of our history is so important. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it's the best way to connect with young people. You know, I mean, it's hard to understand maybe how it was to experience being part of a big court case or, or something that, that's, that's enormous. But it's very easy to understand going out with your friends and what you did to have fun. And I think that's a real opportunity for understanding. And it's, um, it's part of the history that we need to pass down. I agree. And it's been an incredible journey for me. Um, I've done almost a hundred of these interviews now. So we're talking about probably 95 hours of video um, in its edited form. And I have interviewed people of all different ages from all different places. Um, the, the most distant memory, uh, first person memory that I've captured so far is a man who used to own some bars in Atlanta. His name was Ted Binkley. Mm -hmm. uh, he later moved to Alabama and owned a bar there. Um, and he tells about his first bar experience before he was legally old enough to go to a bar um, in Nashville, Tennessee in 1952. Think about that, 70 oh, yeah. years ago. And he's here to tell us about it. So that's one of the reasons I feel it's so important to capture some of these stories um, because the people that lived the experiences in these bars, especially the ones from the 50s and 60s, they're not going to be around forever. And yeah. if we don't capture them now, they're, you know, as you know, back then, we did not walk into a bar with a camera or a video recorder oh, yeah. or anything. Yeah. So there are very few um, pictures other than some of the maybe local newspapers that may have occasionally captured one or in some rare exceptions, some local photographer who just had a passion for taking pictures of, you know, drag queens and, and discos, and they captured them. But it is sad that so many of the, the smaller cities uh, did not have the opportunity that New York did, because 
when you talk about clubs like Studio 54, Studio 54 was open for like 15 minutes. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it was a flash in the pan compared to these other bars, some of which lasted, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And it nobody was, knows much about. I, I agree with what you're saying, but in, I will also say that Studio 54 was like, it was the moment, you know, it was, it wasn't open long, but it was like, it was uh, the, you know, the place, but yeah, it, it, it would be nice to sort of divvy up the attention a little bit. And I think part of this too is like, it's, as you, as you age, (laughs) um, I think looking back on history, one of the the things about LGBTQ history that, that, um, that I kind of would like to do with my work and that I have been trying to go in that direction is that especially our recent history is Stonewall, uh, Stonewall riots, AIDS, gay marriage now, you know, and it's literally like you're standing there skipping a stone over the side of a lake and, you know, those things are all really important, but there's a whole lake underneath that, that, um, that is kind of the, in my opinion, kind of the real story, you know, is sort of the, the undercurrent of what people doing, were doing while all those things were going on, you know, right. and so much of that history, unlike, you know, the big the big events haven't been chronicled and that's what's important. Well, so much of where we are today as a community can be attributed to the things that happened in conjunction with or physically at the bars and nightclubs in the time frame between um, Stonewall and you know the late 90s. There's oh, sure. so much, so many of our organizations that you know we're um, relying upon to fight for our rights and to push these agendas in in state and national legislatures and what have you all formed as a result of fundraisers that were done by drag queens and bar owners around the country uh, you know people who gathered there for meetings they played such an integral part in where we have gotten today um well, and yet a lot of that is just brushed aside well and um I think it's also not emphasized enough um, in the pre-computer age that bars were also centers for communication. Bars were centers for organizing. Like um, I think here about the Anita Bryant protests. Those protests were organized by the bars who ran shuttle buses down to the event. um, And there was that sort of interaction between bar, bars and community. Like the bars were starting, the bars were at that point where they were being owned by, uh, by LGBTQ people. So they became much more politically involved. Um, a lot of times the bars were involved because the people who worked and owned the bars were kind of the out people in the community that a lot of times people weren't out in. 
Now you had mentioned, um, you know, one of the important bars that you had never had the chance to visit was Dugan's, uh, Dugan's Bistro. What was that physically like? Was that a big bar? Did it have a huge dance floor? Was it flashy or was it just a bar? It was, it wasn't huge. Um, it didn't have an enormous ceiling. It didn't have a high ceiling. I mean, it, it just had a certain magic. And a big part of that magic was Eddie Dugan, who had this just incredible personality and this great sense of the outrageous. Um, he had the sort of personality where he could walk up to you in the bar and greet you and be like, hi, how are you doing? You know, I'm so glad you're, you're here. And would people would talk about making you feel that like, he was so happy you were there and he, you were the reason like he was, you know, up tonight and all that. And then he could go on and just do that with everyone and just make everyone feel so happy to be there. And one of the things he did too, which was amazing is he knew word of mouth and he knew what people would talk about, you know? So he would do things like have a drag queen, get up on the bar in the middle of, you know, middle of the evening and just kick all the glasses and napkins and everything else off the bar and just cause a big ruckus. And then Eddie would just replace everyone's drinks and it would just be kind of this outrageous thing that happened at the bistro that people would talk about the next day. And that was actually how I got started in this was just hearing those stories about just those crazy things that because of insurance today, you can't even imagine a bar doing. For one of Eddie's birthday parties, they had a hole cut in the ceiling. He was lowered from this, this is above the dance floor, was lowered from the ceiling into an empty bathtub then had in the middle of the dance floor, then had half naked go-go boys come out and fill the bathtub with champagne. Um, another time, yeah, just insane things that would, that just couldn't be done today. You know, it was an era of abandon and like I said, outrageousness, you know? And then the other thing that attracted me uh, to the whole project was the fact of, the bearded lady becoming this celebrity and the bearded lady was something else that people talked about when they left the bar. It was something else in Chicago that you had to see something else that made the bistro cross over and be listed in, you know, things to do in the Tribune and have it be visited by um, members of the Rolling Stones or, uh, or Diana Ross or Ted Kennedy or whoever. You know, it was a celebrity magnet. You know, it sort of was at that point where it was one of those gay bars that became bigger. And there wasn't a lot of that before then. There wasn't a lot of that where the community was, where the, the larger community, I should say, came onto our turf. Because that was another thing that Eddie was adamant about was that despite the mainstreaming of the bistro, it was going to still be very much a gay bar. 
he did not want to change that at all to such a degree that if too many straight people were in there, he would have people, you know, go just be sexually outrageous on the uh-huh. dance floor just to sort of shock them. You know, he, uh, he, he did not want any, you know, he did not want mainstreaming at that cost. Sounds like he was definitely ahead of his time. And um, I would yeah. definitely, I would definitely recommend to anybody who's listening to this um, podcast to um, to go ahead and look for a copy of Dugan's Bistro and the Legend of the Bearded Lady. Uh, so you get to hear a lot more of these stories and hear a lot more about Dugan's because we could never, we'd be here all day talking about that bar. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I know. I just start talking about it. And like I said, this is another project that was just a labor of love. It was sort of starting to hear those stories and be like, okay, stop everything. This is something that, you know, needs that needs to get written down. Plus, I kind of want to go on this time travel. Like, it was a fun place to spend my time, you know, while I was working on the book. I understand. And, um, <laughs> you know, my whole project was about connecting all these people and these stories in addition to the um, the video segments like this, I have a page on my website, on the Gabe Archives website, that is called Archives. And mm-hmm. on that page, I list uh, links to as many of the LGBT uh, archives websites that I could find, some international, some national, and then they're broken down by state for the ones that are specific to individual um, states and cities, because doing the research, and I'm sure you came across the same issue, nothing is integrated. You know, the University of Chicago doesn't tell you what the University of Illinois has or that they even have an archive. So I tried to make a master list and I've got well over a hundred archives listed there uh, from around the country and a few international. Uh, So I, I, you know, don't intend to capture everybody's story, but at least try to connect people where they can find the stories like the one you wrote about Dugan's Bistro. It's out there. So, you know. And that's such an important tool that you're, um, that you're providing because it's, it really is. It's um, so much of the research is not in mainstream periodicals either. You know, a lot of times it's papers that were smaller or local or, you know, bar rags or whatever that, um, that make research tough, you know? So LGBTQ archives in general, like here we have, we're very fortunate. We have Gerber Hart Library and Archives, and we also have the Leather Museum and Archives or Leather Archives and Museum, I'm sorry. And, uh, those two sources have been an incredible help on any work I've done here. And they're both listed on my archives page. And thank you for that. Thank you for that. Because a lot of times people don't realize how incredible these local resources are and how necessary, you know, is the other thing. And also, as long as we're talking about it, um, for whoever is listening to this, please, please make sure that you have if you have papers or um, magazines or newspaper articles or matchbooks or whatever that's part of 
the LGBTQ story, um, please make some sort of arrangement that those will go to an archive someday or something like that, because it is, it might not seem like a big deal, but it's all part of a bigger story. So that's also a great resource that you provided where people can find out places where they might be able to contribute to their local archive or museum. Okay. So are there any other Chicago bars you want to talk about or? Well, one of the other ones that I am like going back to the bistro uh, and legendary bars in Chicago that I regret never going to, but am obsessed by and writing about is the gold coast, which was the legendary leather bar, um, in Chicago, uh, mostly, mostly at 501 North Clark street. Um, and it too was a groundbreaking bar. I mean, it, it was the bar that spawned the International Mr. Leather Contest. Um, it was adorned with the erotic artwork of Etienne, who was co-owner of the, uh, of the Gold Coast with Dom, or Dom Orjudos, who was co-owner of the Gold Coast with Chuck Renslow, who was his life partner. Um, and it had a pit that was like an anything goes pit, like a sexual wonderland. And in the pit, there was a jail cell that was, um, it was called the leather cell that was a, a custom made leather works. And I believe the first leather sling was on display in the, that, that actual jail cell that, that was down there. Um, the Gold Coast is another sort of level of decadence that just I'm completely mesmerized by. And I've written about it. I wrote um, I, with Tracy Bain. I'm, um, I did a few bios and one of them was um, Leatherman, the legend of Chuck Renslow. And uh, I wrote about Gold Coast quite a bit there and I was so interested in it. But I kind of, when writing about this period, I kind of thought writing about the Gold Coast might not be as important maybe as writing about um, Chuck's other big business uh, at the time, which was Man's Country Bathhouse in Chicago. So that's my current project. I'm writing about the heyday of the, the golden era of bathhouses um, and charting how man's country played a part in the community, how it was important for the development of the community, how it um, evolved and what incredible performers performed there in the music hall, um, how it was just this wonderland, you know, of, of offering gay men more than just the kind of towel and key sort of bathhouse. Um, and it's just charting the course of that and seeing, you know, the heyday of bathhouses and, and just how important it was and the, um, the dawn of AIDS and the decline of the bathhouses and how 
Man's Country in Chicago remained open through that because of its connection with uh, STD testing, which you know extends back to the mid 70s and having a clinic on site to test for um, venereal disease and having Wanda Lust, who uh, was the resident DJ and drag queen and manager of the music hall, dress up as a nurse and become Nurse Lust to promote STD testing, you know, to the degree where even uh, a mobile STD unit was launched called the VD Van, which literally drove around, would park outside popular bar areas and then Wanda Lust dressed as Nurse Lust, so probably, you know, six foot seven in heels and hair, um, would run into the bars and try to get people to come out and get tested for STDs. And the idea might seem, you know, crazy, but the thing was, is that VD van in its first week on the streets um, got a thousand people tested for STDs, which is enormous. So there's so many side stories with, with, uh, with man's country. And, you know, then uh, through, through AIDS, how, how it was, um, how parts of it were uh, walled off and became, first of all, the big nightclub Bistro 2, and then the building was reconfigured again, and part of it became the Chicago Eagle. And the fact that in its heyday, man's country had, it had a country store. It had like literally a store within the bathhouse, a country store with a display window and everything. It had you know, earlier that store had been called Erogenous Stones that sold, you know, different things you might use in a bathhouse. And it, there's just such a rich culture there that um, I wanted to write about because I think it's easy to look back on bathhouses as just, they become very sort of vilified and demonized, meaning the heyday of bathhouses, that that they're seen as something not as glorious as maybe what they were to the people at the time, which again was all about sexual abandon, sexual exploration, sexual liberation, and how being able to do that at that period was a political act. Like, we haven't been able to do this. Now we're doing it in a place that's set aside for this. Absolutely. You know, it, and every time um, I posted something um, in my Gay Archives group, which really surprised me. When I started the Gay Archives group on Facebook, um, maybe not even a year and a half ago, I had no great hopes that it was going to become very popular. I didn't know what to expect. But now we have over 5,500 members, and they love talking about gay bar history from all over the country. And every time I've posted anything about man's country, people come out of the woodwork. I mean, they're like, oh, my God, I had such great times. I met my husband there. I used to go there every Saturday. I practically lived there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, well, One of the things we forget, like man's country was a place where 
This was the place to go with your friends after the bars closes, closed. This was a place to continue the bar party. There were people who would go there and like go there for the weekend. Like they would bring beads to hang in the doorway. They would bring, you know, decor. Um, it was, it was much more social and much more of an experience than I think bathhouses are seen as. I mean, some of the performers there, I mean, it was incredible. There was Waylon Flowers and Madam, Charles Bush, um, uh, Rusty Warren, Pudgy, like all these incredible acts. And then when it became Bistro 2, you know, Divine performed there in one of their final performances, club performances. Um, the village people performed there. Boy George performed there, you know. And then you have the history of the Chicago Eagle, which is a whole nother story, you know, of, of just... Uh, of the evolution of community. Well, you know? as you're as and, you're working on this this book and talking about this, there are two people I've interviewed that come to mind um, who have expressed memories of stories about that general scene in Chicago back in the day. And one of them is the owner of a really cool store in San Francisco called Auto Erotica. Oh yeah, I know Pat. Is, huh? Is this Pat? Yeah, Pat, Pat, yeah. Pat. Um, he obviously was connected with Chuck and with that whole scene. And the other one, I don't know if you've, you've talked to at all, but um, until I interviewed him, I didn't realize he had a Chicago connection. And um, that was Bruce Valanche. I'm, you know what? I'm talking to him later today. Well, tell him We're I said hi. Too. Tell him I said hello. We had um, a fabulous time a couple months ago in uh, Fort Lauderdale at his show. And then at a couple of uh, clubs there, and um, and I interviewed him. He was an early interview, probably a year ago, uh, in this series. Well, what what I'm fascinated about to talk to him about is he's a perfect. He wrote about a column about Man's Country being the spa to go to for the Chicago Tribune uh -huh. in 1975. Yep, but then. I mean, that's really, but then he also played, uh, played meaning uh, performed, performed at. at the music hall at Man's Country too. So it's, it's, it'll be fun to get a lot of different perspectives. And he also but, has the bathhouse connection with um, writing for Bette Midler and Barry Manilow oh, yeah. when they were performing in the bathhouse circuit. So yeah, definitely. He's, he's definitely going to be an interesting person to talk to about this whole scenario. Oh, I love talking about the golden era of this. Um, and oh, something else I wanted to mention about that is so key to man's country and to get the visual is that going back to, to Chuck's lover and life partner being um, Dom, who is also the erotic artist Etienne, who's sort of, he, Tom of Finland, and um, he and Tom of Finland, in my mind, are sort of the, Iconic. The iconic too. And so Etienne Dom did these incredible murals to both sides going up the stairway where it looks like these hot men are going up the stairs to either side of you. At the top of the stairs, he did this incredible mural of, it said the music hall and it had like a naked um, muse, I guess, playing a lyre 
I, I, I'm not sure if you pronounce it that way. You know what I mean. Yeah. L-Y-R-E. Um, there was that. Chuck was, uh, Chuck Renslow was also previously in the 1950s, the owner of Chris Studios, which was one of the big, um, like male physique photography studios. So there were these incredible framed photos, professional photos of a lot of his artwork um, in the hallways as well, combined with, you know, um, different Dom murals. There was this incredible painting that's in the Leather Archives and Museum now that was in the locker room that's very long. It's called like car wash or something like that. That's incredible. Um, but then there were also posters, like a poster for, a signed poster from Sally Rand and a signed poster from Charles Pierce. And it was, uh, it was, a lot more than than a bathhouse. And that's kind of the point I want to get across is that this is another fragile history. And this is a history that's also a lot of times shrouded in shame or something that people shouldn't talk about, which a lot of times as a historian means that's exactly what you, you know, Right. People have said the same thing to me because I've included bathhouses um, in the list of of bars or venues or whatever. Uh, And people have said, well, that's not really a bar. And I'm like, well, it's just as important. It was, you know, a very critical part of the evolution of the community. And in some places it was the only um, part. Some places there were no bars, so to speak, but there were bathhouses or some other you know, Atlanta had one called the locker room that nobody could decide if it was a, a show bar or a bathhouse or a gym or what it was supposed to be. Um, but they played an important role and in the evolution of the community, the time when it was very tenuous. I mean, before that point, when you go back into the 50s and 60s, so much of our nightlife was controlled by I hate to use the word, but by, you know, mafia types and people who were taking advantage of the financial position, they could, you know, put out a bar, they could keep the police away long enough to make a lot of money on them. And they weren't really in the best interest of the community. Once we started seeing the bathhouses and some of the newer bars um, that evolved in the 70s and 80s, then we started getting into our own right of having, you know, our own community Right. They became, and yeah, I, I, I agree that like gay bars are really, are out important focus. Um, but I think like as a bigger way to, to, to inclusive way is sort of like queer space in general. Like even right. if the bar doesn't exist, there's the need for like here in Chicago, another big place that, that, um, I, I've enjoyed doing history about is the Belmont Rocks, which were this outdoor queer space that existed in Chicago from the early 1960s until they were bulldozed in 2003. And these were just during the, these were a place we could go and be out and LGBTQ and ourselves in the sunshine in the middle of the city at a time when our bars still had, you know, didn't have windows or if they did have windows, they were painted black. Right. 
you know, and the importance of those places, like you said, with more than just bars, but there has to be somewhere. Absolutely. And, um, and so I've tried to include as much as I can about these different kind of places in, in my project as well. And I really appreciate the kind of work that you're doing. I mean, obviously, in your the writing portion um, of your career, you've documented numerous bars, you've, you've uh, put out a lot of information, preserved a lot of information that might have otherwise been lost. And obviously, at this point, you're working on a another book that's going to be yet another addition to our um, you know, massive collection of knowledge about what's going on or what went on in the gay scene around the country. But you also, as I mentioned in your introduction, um, are one of the co-founders of the Legacy Project, which okay. is another important thing in a physical manifestation of our gay history right in the middle of um, a boys town and throughout Chicago, preserving that history. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Legacy Project is and, and what you do? Sure. Um, well, actually they changed the, the, now it's called North Halstead. Um, right. So in North, on North Halstead, there are these enormous rainbow pylons and on the sides of the pylons are affixed these bronze plaques of various LGBTQ people in history and uh, worldwide. And so it's this outdoor walking history museum celebrating LGBTQ history. It's educational. Um, it has a big educational element. Um, it's expanded now where there's the legacy wall which is an, an expanded version of what you see on the North Halstead streetscape that includes much more information and is available for travel. So a lot of times, you know, different hospitals or schools or whatever, or state buildings will have it in their lobby as an educational tool. Um, and this is the brainchild of Victor Salvo. Um, I, I'm a co-owner, but a co-owner, co-founder, but um, along with Lori Cannon. But this is basically being a co being a a, a, a co-founder is is truth is truthfully being Victor's lieutenant in this. I mean, I've done a lot of the I do a lot of the biographies that are written, but. Um, it's Victor who's really taken this project to a whole nother level. Well, as I, I mentioned to another one of your comrades up there, um, Rick Carlin, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's an honor just to, to play the smallest role in this project um, in the grand scheme of things, because collectively, uh, I have I have met and spoken to so many people that are doing such a great job, but nobody can do it all. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of cities and tens of thousands of bars across the country that need their memories preserved and the stories told. And we all just need to work together and do our part, whatever part we can do. And eventually there will be an entire, you know, collective history of um, of what you know, the gay community experience and what we had over the decades. So it's, it's well, great to play as just even a small part. 
Well, and with the work you're doing too, I think it's incredibly crucial to be doing this now at a time when not only our history, but our very identities are being threatened to be wiped away. Um, you know, the don't say gay issues, you know, are, are horrific. Um, and I think this is, we really need to, part of entrenching ourselves and saying we're not going anywhere is to show that this has, that this has a history. This isn't something that came about. This was something that was always here and was allowed to flourish, you know, or we, uh, that our history is, is part of the bigger history, you know, and that we're not going back into the closet, basically. I, I somehow have this vision of, I think it was the old ACT UP uh, phrase, coming back, uh, we're, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of feel like we're at a, a point where that's coming back into our lives and we need to, you know, stand up and, and pronounce the fact that we're not going anywhere. Um, yeah. So, because all these things that all these pioneers and, you know, so many of the people you cover in your bar history, those people fought, you know, for the freedoms to do all this stuff. And it can, it's very tenuous, you know, it can be taken away really easily. And I think, um, the best way to honor that and to honor our legacy is to just make sure that nothing happens to our past. Absolutely. And I want to invite you to share any of the information you have about, you know, any of the LGBT icons from the past or the, um, uh, Dugan's Bistro, your book on man's country, any of that kind of stuff in the gay archives group and use that as an additional tool to, you know, interact with people and to reach out because that's what the group is there for. And that's what those 5,500 people are looking for. They want to interact with people about our gay history. So, you know, please feel free to use it. Oh, it's so important. And um, you mentioned Rick Carlin earlier, and I am so excited that, uh, Rick Carlin and uh, Suki Delacroix are releasing um, Last Call, which is this encyclopedia of Chicago bars that's coming out later this summer, early fall. And the fact that that book exists is just truthfully in my heart, I go. I know, I agree. When I spoke to Rick last year, and he sent me um, a list of, I think at the time they had cataloged 700 uh, bars that used to exist in, in Chicago. Oh my God. Um, and now the Last Call Chicago um, actually cataloged 1,001 LGBT friendly venues from Chicago's history. So they've added another 300. Um, just amazing. And it's so refreshing to know that those people are out there doing this kind of work. So, and not only, and yeah, I mean, doing that kind of work and that, like just, just 
wrap your head around that. Like a thousand and one bars. Like that's crazy. I mean, what do we have now? I mean, I don't know, 25 maybe? A couple dozen, you know? And it's, I mean, that number just blows me away. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about the books that you've worked on, about your memories from uh, Illinois bar history, and for everything that you do with the Legacy Project. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you, actually, for um, what you're doing is another one of those things that I see being done. And again, with like with the uh, Rick Carlin and Suki book, I just go, that it's it's work that like makes my heart happy to see happening. So thank you really for for this and for this opportunity to even, you know, to share my history. Absolutely my pleasure. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.